Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. When I started college at New York University in 1990, nobody lived in Brooklyn. Brooklyn was the dark side of the moon. At least, that's how we NYU students thought about it. Lots of people lived in Brooklyn, of course, just not us. It's 2018, and Brooklyn has become an international brand, synonymous with artisanal pickles, gastropubs, and luxury condos. It's the place even former NYU students can't afford to live anymore. But in a couple of Brooklyn neighborhoods, people are still dressing and living in many ways like it's the 18th century and adhering to laws that date back centuries, even millennia earlier. I'm talking about Hasidic Judaism, and particularly today about Borough Park, Brooklyn, where one Hasidic community thrives. Even more particularly about one woman, Rachel Rucci Fryer, who, in spite of being religiously observant as most humans would define it, has nonetheless become a thorn in the side of the more conservative elements of this already deeply conservative community. The all-female volunteer ambulance corps she started was a radical move for Borough Park, and it's the subject of 93 Queen, a new documentary by Paula Eiselt. Welcome to Think Again, Paula. Thanks for having me. So I think we should start talking in at a kind of broad level for listeners who don't know anything about Hasidic Jewry and sort of what it represents. I mean, what's interesting to me to begin with is the fact that originally in the 18th century in Europe, when Hasidism started, when you had the founders like the Baal Shem Tov yeah. and Nachman of Bratislav and those guys, it was a radical movement. It was like a radical response to Orthodox Judaism. Yes. It was a movement to bring Judaism to the people, almost like a populist movement where, you know, Judaism is inherently very educational driven, uh, Torah study driven. And the Hasidic movement was looking to elevate the Jewish life beyond the text. Yeah. I'm thinking about like, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, a, the, you know, the sort of like charismatic evangelical movements in American Christianity. And and there's there are parallels in a sense, because I know that early Hasidic, there was much more dancing, much more singing. You know, it was a, it was a charismatic, as you say, populist movement. Yeah. And, and it was they're actually the first, you know, um, the Hasidic founders, the Baal Shem Tov and, and his students, they were put in. Uh, they were like excommunicated almost because it was so radical. Radical, um, and and it was kind of like this free movement. So yeah, they were, they it's were not... like hippies of of the of the, of the, <laughs> the European Jewish community, basically. Yeah, um, and, and that's you know not how it's seen today. You know, today it's seen as just uh, very from the outside, very dogmatic and stringent rather than free, right? Right, you know, right. Like that's, how it, that's how it looks from the perspective of, yeah, your average contemporary New Yorker walking around Borough Park, I yeah. suppose. People all dress the same, more or less, according to very strict rules. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because if, if you talk to like an average Hasidic person, you know, the, the real ideology of the movement is still, you know, joy and, and, and spirituality. And um, recently in the past, you know, three, four decades, like that, it, it has just shifted to be more stringent. What's the engine of that shift, do you think? I, I think there's such an, a narrative, obviously, behind Hasidim today. 
that is a, a, a reactive result to the Holocaust. I mean, that right, that's sure. how the face of modern day Hasidism came to be from, you know, the shift after World War Two. So it's like um, a preserving of the of the fire of the of the legacy, whatever, in the face of that. It's it's doubling to down it. on that yeah. and isolating out of fear and, and out of mistrust. I think people assume or think, you know, okay, the Holocaust was, I don't know, 70 years ago. It was, it was a, it's like, okay, guys. Let's but, get over that. But that, yeah, like, right. intergenerational trauma, that doesn't go away. You know, in one generation, there's, I'm a grandchild of, of Holocaust survivors, right? right? right and, like, right. that was that was my grandparents. That's not that far away from me. Gotcha. So I think to expect this community to have just you know, get over that right. is is kind of looking at it in, in a vacuum and not with the historical part that comes with why it's so insular in a way. Yeah, not taking into account, yeah, the real effects of trauma and the kind of psychological processing that a community has to go through. But so then you're suggesting that maybe the more conservative shift is a kind of rigidity that has arisen in reaction to, to that. Yeah, I mean, Rochie says when she grew up or when she was in school in the 80s, it wasn't as serious, you know, it just wasn't as as strict, like even people, you know, I remember one woman in the film told me like, you know, people were wearing color back then. Everyone's wearing black. Mm. Like, what happened? Mm. And she was like a Satmar woman from like a really strict sect of... And, and I should point out, yeah, I should point out that like, you know, Hasidic Jewry is not one thing. You have of these different sects which are descended. They're basically based on this lineage of Rebbe's. Like the Rebbe's are the spiritual leader yeah. of each community. Yes. And it's a familial descent. And, and I think you're, you know, touching on something really important because especially... People who live in New York or live in live in places where there are large Hasidic communities, like it's like, oh, those are the Hasids, Hasids. Yeah. and they're and they're just thought of like this one monolithic block, and there's real diversity there. Like you have Hasidim in Crown Heights who are really different from the ones in Williamsburg, who are different from the ones in Borough Park, and there's like different ideologies and, and different dress codes yeah. and. There's such a diversity there. So I think that's also one of the the stereotypes about this community is that everyone is the same. Diversity, and uh, which also means dialogue, which also means kind of tension and conversation around what's the right way to do things. Like I know, for example, the Lubavitchers, they're the ones that anyone who lives in New York might have seen standing in the street asking people, are you Jewish? And trying to kind of bring lapsed Jews back into the fold, I guess. And that kind of proselytizing, that, you know, that's totally alien to other totally. groups of, of Hasidim. Right. And those, that same group, you know, from Crown Heights, like they also just engage a lot more and are in the secular world. There's one sort of professional audio video store that's solely run by Hasidic Jews. They would probably be from the Crown Heights. Uh, not necessarily. Okay, all right. Not necessarily. You know, like I had my own stereotypes going in myself. I'm like, Williamsburg is like really hardcore. I mean, Borough Park is hardcore, but Williamsburg is like another Even level. More so. And, and what, what group dominates there? That's Satmar. That's Satmar. And that's like, With the fuzzy hats, the Stremels. Or, or well, the Stremels, the all Hasidim wear. Oh, okay. But they wear them on the Sabbath. Okay. Or for a, or a holiday or like a wedding, a special event. So they're, you know, and I met people from Williamsburg that like blew my mind who were just like an average 
guy or girl who was born into this. Right. And they're just like trying to do their best in life. So that those conversations that I've had have blown me away. And I'm someone who's coming mm. at it with more knowledge and experience than sure. the average person. And like if that's blowing me away, then I think there's a lot that we don't understand about the community or want to understand. And I think that there's something to be said here. So I once read I once read a um, a book by Daniel Jonah Goldhagen uh, called Hitler's Willing Executioners. He was a Yale professor and scholar of the Holocaust. And he made the controversial but pretty hard to refute case that that basically average Germans were very much complicit in, in every aspect of, of what happened there. And he talks about anti-Semitism, how it rose you know, throughout the centuries in, in Europe. And that one aspect of it was fueled by, or I mean, it's hard to say this without it sounding like victim blaming, yeah. but was that one aspect of it was conditioned by the separateness of the Jewish communities and the way that more Orthodox Jewish communities tend to focus inward rather than outward and, and tend to say, okay, this is how we do it and this is our thing, leave us to ourselves. And I think that's a really hard pill for a lot of the secular world to swallow, you know, yeah. like to stand next to a group that's basically saying, eh, we don't care much about what, what you're all about. You do mm -hmm. your thing. L listen, as, as an observant Jewish person, like I grapple with this all the time. However, I'm equally secular. So, you know, I'm not a, a great example of that because I, I don't, I'm not that insular in that way. I want to be very careful here. I'm not in any way calling on anybody to like, account for this or, you know, you know, some apo apologetics for yeah. Judaism's separateness. But the idea of chosenness and separateness creates isolated it's communities that turn inward rather than I think, outward. I think like, that like the whole concept of chosenness is a very troubling idea in itself. You know, however you want to, I've myself thought, have thought about this. It, it <laughs> deeply troubles me. I've spoken to even Ruchi about this. And she, you know, and this is kind of a common answer is, you know, it's not better or worse. It's just <laughs> chosen for a specific way of life. That feels unconvincing to yes. me. Yes, <laughs> that's what it is. But however, I think, I think all religion has an element of chosenness to it. Sure. I think that's more of a, of a problem with religion. So Again, like the insularity is thousands of years deep. Yeah. You know, it's not for, you know, before the Holocaust, you know, Jews couldn't own land. So they had to become merchants because they couldn't stay in one space. So that's, you know, the wandering Jew. That's, you right. know, the whole stereotype with moneylenders, you know, because that's all, that was the trade that was available, available to them. So I, I it's think a, it's, it's a dialogue. It, it went back and forth. You know, the, the separatism was enforced both from within and, and from and without. And that's why with this, it, and it's a cycle. And, and that's kind of what I said to Ruchi in the beginning, like, listen, we have we have to break this cycle. This is like a catch twenty two here mm. because there's such contention with the media and the Hasidic community, and the reason for that is the Hasidic community doesn't let media in, so media tells its own stories from the outside about the community. It's it's largely negative, right? And then the Hasidic community doubles down and says, "Look, the media is bashing us. Why should we open up?" And then they <laughs> close down more, and the same thing happens over and over again. So I said to Rookie, I said. 
if you're not happy with how you're portrayed in the media, then you have to show us something else. Like what you're doing is amazing. Like let people see, for lack of a better word, the humanity Mm. that you have. It's Mm. so simple. Like people really don't think Hasidic women are anything but subjugated and invisible. Right. Right. Show them something else. And and that and she's like, Yeah, I can't believe that's what people think. I was like, Yeah. All we hear is profoundly, deeply troubling negative stories about your community. Show us something else if if you if you, that's not how what you agree with. So for this film and another one I think that you're working on, you have yeah. un, you have unprecedented access to this community. Yeah. You have you have family members who are Hasidic or relatives? My uncle is Hasidic, uncle. he lives in Borough Park. Okay. And so, yeah, I was going to get there and you kind of took us there already, which is that how do you get a community that that really isn't necessarily interested in talking to the outside world to do that? It's a painful and, experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, did you did you find yourself as a filmmaker like there were just lots of people that would not that you wanted on camera who wouldn't go on camera? And that kind there's of thing? so many. There was so much of that to deal with. But because I, ha- I am observant and I can relate and really speak the language, not literally because I don't speak Yiddish, but be able to just have an understanding of where they're coming from. Right. Um, I have kids, I'm a mother. Like there's a lot of of avenues to, to get to each other. And um, they knew that, I, that while I was filming, I was going to be respectful, that mm. I understood the littlest things like that an uncovered knee was a problem. Right, right. So I really got it. And and that was a trust that they hadn't had before from someone from the outside, you know, in media, really able to understand that. So that was already how, how I got the access to the women and to Ruchi. And it. then, you know, the larger community, I mean, I didn't publicize this film online or anything until it was finished. There was mm. no website. There was no Kickstarter, any crowdfunding, nothing, right. because it was so controversial. We had to keep it, you know, under wraps. And, and for most of it, uh, the vast majority I filmed by myself as a one-woman crew, because wow. that was the only way to get it. And gotcha. we went back and shot a lot of the B-roll and stuff on the streets after I couldn't, you know, because yeah, we you, want to draw roll, attention. You roll in there with a massive crew. You're done. You're done. You're yeah, done. Right, so right. it was it was a lot of. It was difficult, but... We should actually lay out very briefly what's going on with Ruki's story here. Like, so she, first of all, she's in like extraordinary presence, you know, just a a dynamic and very driven, ambitious woman who has uh, political aspirations, wants to be a judge ultimately. But what this film is about is the volunteer ambulance corps that she starts, which ultimately the city calls 93 Queen, or that's the name that goes mm-hmm. on the on the ambulances, yep. which is for women by women primarily, or at least initially. The idea is yeah. that women are giving childbirth, having, get, having babies in this community, and these are women who are not even encouraged, who are discouraged from even shaking the hand of a man who is not their husband. Yeah. And then all the ambulance people, the EMTs, are all male. Right, and they're all, the key is that they're all... Uh, community members, so they they're familiar men. Uh, so, so it's that's, not not right. It's that's not, even weirder. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just male, and you know, initially, Ruchi and the women wanted to join the all male core Hatzala and work together, and they refused to allow women. And it was it was this mm-hmm. ban that really that sparked to have an all female core. 
Right. And um, the all-female core, as you said, is really to provide dignified care to these women who actually will withhold calling for help because they're so embarrassed. So it's really a real women's rights issue to to have this because uh, the outcomes will be better when women have the choice to call women. And I, I just want to emphasize that it's a choice. They're not saying women have to be served by women because right. that, that would not be progressive at all. That would be <laughs> <laughs> perpetuating gender segregation. But Ruchi has said many times, like, you, you can call men, you can call, you can call whoever you want. We're just here that if you want a woman... We're here, um, and as women, they wanted to serve. There, there are women there. One woman in the film, like she was wanted to be a doctor. This is her outlet to now be in medicine. Right. So it's more than just oh, it's inconvenient for the men to come. There's the women's rights issue, and then there's part two. The women's rights issue is having women just be able to be EMTs on a very basic level. Right, and it's threatening to a lot of people in that community for a number of reasons. Right, Hatsola is a powerful organization. They're the largest volunteer ambulance corps in the world. Okay. And they have a lot of political clout in the city. Right. And they service many hospitals. And listen, at the end of the day, they're, I'll say this, they're greater, they're an amazing organization. They save lives. We're talking about an ambulance corps. We're not talking about the some mafia. like, yeah, yeah <laughs> mafia or like super pack or something like right, they're, right, they're, right. they're ambulance, they're EMTs, you know, but they vehemently refuse to have women and it, and it's a really big problem but because they're so renowned and they're the crown jewel of the Jewish community the the observant Jewish community having any little critique is is very hard for people to deal with right and they have just made it so so terribly hard for Ruchi and for the women they've really sabotaged them in many many ways so um taking on Hatzala in that way or, or kind of shedding light into this problem of panning women is something very controversial and we we had to keep under wraps. So that's one of the that's one of the sources of pushback that they're getting. And then also there's just the general threat to like women taking on new yes. roles. N- that n- it's not modest for women to to be running around on ambulances, that you know, women can't handle emergencies. Right. I've they're heard, they're gonna be too emotional or emotional. something. Emotional. I mean, and, I've like, heard yeah. I've heard uh, critiques that are, you know, that you know, if if they're these four hundred pound men, you know, <laughs> who are having a heart attack from eating too much chulent, you know, <laughs> like how are these women gonna do it? And it's Which like, interestingly are the same critiques we get for women serving in the armed forces exactly the same exactly and it's kind of like actually what if everyone in borough park is 400 pounds and you have an obesity epidemic that you should be dealing with first of all and what male is also going to carry a 400 pound man you know what i mean like (laughs) all you men are in like the best shape are you all gonna need a few men yeah yeah yeah, yeah, so it's so i mean that's just like a ridiculous and uh, humorous thing to say you know and i think the crux of it in, in my personal opinion, is that Hatzala has claimed EMS as male space. That's what it is. So gotcha. just to have women now, you know, encroaching on that space is very threatening. Right. Maybe it's politically threatening. Maybe it's economically threatening for them. Maybe they don't want to share funding. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's just emasculating to have women now sure doing something that's, you know, perceived as so cool and they're superheroes and now like a woman wants to do it, suddenly it's not that cool anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I think it it could be just like down to straight up good old misogyny. I mean, the other thing 
that I was thinking as I was watching the film is that communities like this, I suppose, have to ask themselves, <laughs> that is to say, you sort of can't have it both ways. If you want a community that is traditional in many aspects, then if traditions get eroded, there is a point at which the community has to ask itself, when do we cease to be this thing that we're claiming to be? And where those fights are going to happen, whether they're misogynistically motivated or, or otherwise, uh, just on the battle lines of how do we define ourselves as a community? You know, at the core of this film, rather the soul of it is change from within. You know, how do conservative communities change? And, and I believe, as Ruchi has shown, it's from the bottom up. It's from the people who are living within that community right. that recognize a void. They're the ones that are going to be able to fill it and make sustainable and effective change. And I think from the outside, that change may not be as excite, exciting or sexy because <laughs> right. you have to compromise. It's not like breaking down the system. It's like right. fixing it from within. Right. Um, Reform, as it were. Yeah. And I think, but I think what Ruchi was only able to accomplish, this groundbreaking thing, because she also played by the rules at the same time. I think the fears are legitimate in the following sense, right? Like standing as I am in secular society, and when you look at the stats of like what is happening to, what has happened to religiosity over the last couple hundred years in the mm -hmm. West, people are less religious and more and more people identify as atheists. And the question is, yes, conservative con communities can reform themselves from within, but the question is whether that progression is inevitably a progression towards something that doesn't look like that community anymore. The, the fear that communities like this have that this, something like this might be a slippery slope to secularism, yes. that may be correct in the long run. Right. I think, <laughs> you <know>? I think, <laughs> I, I, yes, like, like it might be, but I think, like I'm talking about Judaism right now, like yeah, historically yeah. there have been, Reform Judaism movements. has evolved and reformed in so many ways and it's still around today. Right. You know, like it's still, it's it's very much still here. Somehow it survived to maybe some people's chagrin, you know? <laughs> There's still some of us around. So yeah, you're speaking from probably the opposition to, you know, that, that any reform is a slippery slope, but it's from my I'm point of view. I'm being a devil's advocate yeah, because I, I, I am a totally secular, you know, I'm, I'm an atheist with a, one a Jewish parent and one Roman Catholic Italian parent. So. That's... <laughs> was that complicated? <laughs> um, not really, although I will say this, and yeah, let's let's digress a little. My mother was religious uh, in a sort of like ritually observant sense. We went to church, you know, there wasn't a lot of talk about spirituality or God or anything like that except in church. And I ultimately rebelled against that when I was 13 years old and went away from it. But when I was like 22, 23, I went, I became very interested in Judaism and Jewish theology and the books. And I went to Israel for six months. I started a second graduate program in Hebrew University in biblical studies. Wow. <laughs> I, I then made an about face because I was like, okay, this actually isn't leading anywhere in in terms of the grand scheme of my life. But, but I seriously considered converting to some kind of modern Orthodox Judaism because 
because I found great meaning in the texts and in the interpretation of the texts and in the structures that Judaism could lend to, to give shape to your life and your community. And I think I was also looking for community, which yeah. I hadn't really grown up with. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I happen to be Maran Orthodox. And for me, it's really a beautiful thing because I, I get to have it all. You know, (laughs) it's like I I think, you know, the spirituality, the community is all there. But I go to a synagogue where everyone is very progressive and open minded and artistic and we're all very much equally secular. I mean, I'm in the film industry. I went to NYU film school like and I'm able to um, have that existence that's very fulfilling to me, although art in itself and religion are, are usually at odds with each other. Right. So I I do I can I can be my own devil's advocate on a daily basis I am, you know, like religion is a social construct. I'm very right. aware of that. Right. And my critique, like I said before, on certain aspects of Judaism are probably more in just religion in general. But I've I haven't on a personal level felt like I'm missing anything that would lead me to not want to stay in that social construct. And I think if you're measuring like fulfillment and happiness, existing, like I said, coexisting in a secular world, it's not like I see that my secular half has figured it out more than my religious half. Sure. I think for me, ultimately, the, the trouble was that I couldn't invest in what felt to me like a fictional structure. Like that is to say the secular world has lots of fictions, lots of narratives, But within the secular world, I don't adhere. I'm not sort of attached to any particular narrative all Mm. of the time. And the structures of modern Orthodox Judaism, for all the the flexibility there, are very specific. You're living a very specific, you're living in a very specific lifestyle in some ways that I just ultimately felt like I couldn't. Right. That was a fiction I couldn't commit to. Yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's difficult. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that it also, this is what I'm born into. This is what I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it'd be, if, if I wasn't. It's familiar, yeah. It would, it would be a whole, a whole different story here. There was that too. There's the issue of, the con- of conversion. And that, that's another particularly painful thing for like, because my father is Jewish, my mother is right. not. And coming to terms with the fact that like, you're not considered Jewish, that it's matrilineal and like, yep. you know, what that would mean. That's There's a whole nother so thing. so many, yeah, yeah, yeah. there are so many things that are troubling problematic <laughs> in in Judaism and religion, religion I'm not, I'm not gonna yeah, 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 yeah. that that's very problematic to me you know I made a rule for myself in terms of my religion like as long as I'm not asked to ever hurt myself or to hurt others I'm cool mm. you know the second mm-hmm. if that would ever change that's like a threshold for me and I know that that can be defined in different ways like what kind of pain is it physical, emotional, like mm. you can get, you can get deep into that. Sure. But, um, and I do, but I still have been able to, in the community where I live now and in my, my family life, not be in pain and just, you know. And not have that, those structures be a source of pain or coercing you into causing it. Right. Yeah. At yeah. this point in life. So far, so good. But yeah. well, and that's the point. The point is that as you are saying, the path you've chosen allows you to question and allows you to think about what's working and what isn't. And and if it's not working for you, you'll 
you'll make changes. Yeah. yeah. And, and I will say, you know, just back to the Hasidic community, I'm well aware that that is not that the case there. You can't be as open and questioning. Mm. Um, but I think there is still more of a choice there than people from the outside assume. Well, for sure, we've had the documentaries about the people who have left, you know. Mm -hmm. What we don't often get are the stories of the people who choose to stay. Change isn't made by the people who leave, it's made by the people who stay. Right. That, to me, is is like a factual statement. We don't have to like that. It's, I'm not saying that's the only way, but right. that's just... Right, it's not a moral, just, yeah, it's, it's, uh, morally saying, charged statement. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, I just think effective change happens that way whether we like it or not. So I, sh- <laughs> so I shouldn't move to Canada if Trump gets reelected. I don't think so. <laughs> I think you should stay and fight. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm joking. But, but, yeah. but, I, yeah. but truthfully. To your point, to your point. To your point, I mean, I think we all need to like have the grit to not like leave this country uh, in flames. Yeah, yeah. I think that that is a very definitive note on which to move to the second part of the show, where we'll watch surprise quips and uh, and see where the conversation goes. Fun. Okay, okay. cool. So this is from Reza uh, Aslan, who okay. is a popular speaker on religion and theology, and the video is the clip is called "Who Are We." The most powerful force that defines religion uh, is society. Um, It's very important to understand that religion is an ever malleable thing. There is no such thing as Christianity. It doesn't exist. There are Christianities and the way that one defines uh, the gospel the way that one understands uh, Jesus as either the Son of God or the Messiah or as a you know a, a great teacher to 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 emulate, um, the way that one uh, places sort of the the Christology or even the creedal formula of of Catholicism um, has everything to do with where one lives. Um, if you are a Catholic living in suburban uh, Denver. Uh, with your two and a half kids and your car and your house, your Jesus is probably a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed peacenik who turns the other cheek. If you're a Catholic living in the hills of Guatemala, your Jesus, besides being Mexican, is a fighter, a liberator, one who stands up to the oppressor and indeed who takes up arms against oppression. Uh, It's the same Jesus, it's the same Catholicism, but the understanding is radically different depending on where you live. The same, of course, is true of Islam. If you're a Muslim living in Detroit, uh, then your idea of Islam is of a religion of peace and submission and, and pluralism. If you're a Muslim living on a garbage heap on Gaza, then your version of Islam is as a religion of social justice. Um, So everywhere that you go, you will see different expressions, different uh, manifestations of what can be called the same religion, the same faith. And I think that we need to understand that uh, because in a way, too often we look at 
the differences between religious communities as being defined as differences in religion. And frankly, it's more often differences of community than it is of religion. Religion is an ever-evolving process. If a religion stops evolving, it dies. And there are thousands and thousands of examples of dead religions in the world uh, that we can talk about um, that simply went away because they were not able to adapt to the constant changes of human civilization and human societies. The reason we talk about the great religions, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, these five massive world religions that have been around for thousands of years and, and that have billions of worldwide followers, what makes them great is because they're constantly adapting, they're constantly evolving. That's why they, they continue to exist. The moment you stop adapting, the moment you stop evolving to whatever social, political, economic, uh, or cultural landscape that the religion finds itself in, the mo that's the moment in which it goes away. It's funny because we were talking about like modern Orthodox Juda Judaism specifically, and I think this question of how it's going to evolve is very much in the zeitgeist right now because there's been like a movement where women are becoming rabbis. Mm. And it's within modern, within modern orthodoxy and women's leadership also just like in more right wing orthodoxy. And there's like this moment right now, you know, like, where is it going to go? Either, you know, we evolve appropriately right. and let women have leadership positions, which is, you know, wild and not based on in the Torah in the least bit. Or in my opinion, it will implode because women are not going to stick around much longer if they're out in the secular world. And for the most part, secular world is not <laughs> equal either, right. but there's more opportunity there and then coming back to their communities and they can't even be a president of a shul, of a synagogue. Yeah. You know, like how is that dichotomy gonna work? It's I don't think it will for I much mean, longer. The concept of modern orthodoxy is in some ways self-contradictory, right? <laughs> I mean it's, it's right in like, some ways inherently, it's like, it, it just like, like pick one. Yeah. I know. Like yeah. I mean it, yeah, it's like liber it's like calling something progressive conservative. Yes, and that's why <laughs> there's not like so many of us probably because <laughs> it's like people either just, you know, say there's just so far you can go and if you want to go further in progress then you can't be orthodox. Right. And then there's people who are like like you said before this is going too far, we're going to double down and become more right wing. But it's coming out of this desire, or at least for a lot of people, and like I guess the way I was thinking about it way back when, for enough structure that this thing actually defines your life as opposed to, you know, you show up in shul on Yom Kippur, but enough flexibility that you as a modern or contemporary person can like can live within it. That's the weird balance that I guess you're trying to... Yes, and I think, yeah. you know, there's also the same type of balance in Islam, right now mm. and Muslim women mm. who have heard about this story or have seen it it's like we totally get that aside from being beautiful it shows that this is not self-contained in the Hasidic community or in Judaism like it's really much more wide reaching than that yeah, um, yeah. it may not be like the western you know secular <laughs> part of it but there's a lot of obviously people outside that white western secular thinking that sure. that that relate very much to to this story and the struggle of balance of what you're 
saying. We don't have a Muslim here to comment on this, but one thing that has come up in these kinds of discussions in the past is like, is the fact that Judaism and Christianity both had significant reform movements. I mean, there is reform Judaism. There is, you know, secular Judaism. Yeah, there is (laughs) that, you know, you know, there are all, all gradations of Christianity since the Protestant Reformation. Islam differs in that it hasn't formally had that yet. There hasn't been a formal progressive movement within Islam, but maybe that's something we'll see. Yeah, again, yeah. like you said, we don't have someone Muslim sitting here. Yeah, but so we, you on like, know, we can't on like go a too personal, yeah. my personal experience, like I've met plenty, of, plenty of Muslims though who are like modern Orthodox, you know, modern. They're living it, they're even living though there's the not. There's, yeah, there ha- maybe there's not like a defined yeah, yeah. movement, but but I, I on an anecdotal and like a person level, I don't want to use a reform because that implies that there's something wrong with the way it's been. You know, but that's right. Yes, so it's, a, it's a politically charged. Yeah, term. so I don't want to use that word, but I, I progressive. I, right? That I, too, I, even that even implies that. regressive. Exactly, yeah, yeah. but I ha- but I have met plenty of Muslims who are quote unquote progressive, um, and and again, I think that's also something that we uh, as secular and Western thinkers do you know tend to overlook. Sticking with his clip for a minute, and this idea of there being sort of different. Christianities in different places. Let's drill down a little bit on what kind of like what the world looks like from the inside perspective of specifically this Hasidic community in Borough Park. We may have covered this, but I'm I'm forgetting which branch mm. we're dealing with here. Right. For the women in the film, mm. they're actually from like different branches. Uh, Ruchi is Babav. Okay, so that's her sect. But there's a woman. Oh, from, so it's bringing from, women together from different. Yeah, groups. Okay. there's like a woman from the Pupa sect. Okay. There's uh, there is a Lubavitch. Okay, then if we can say though that there's sort of a unifying worldview within Hasidic mm. Judaism, like, can we talk a little bit about what that is? Like, there's a concept of like the love of God. And like the fear of God, that you should have both right. in Judaism. Okay. And fear is so rule following and try, trying to do right. the right thing. Yeah. But you should have. But love is is more of the softer, merciful part. So you. And the the point is, you need to have both. I do think that the Hasidic community has too much fear. A lot of the stringencies are. Is so you won't by accident transgress something. It's like a fence around defense around defense. Got so the it. example of how it's described, if you're learning about it, it's like, okay, there's a cliff. You can have a sign. Mm-hmm. So this would be like the modern orthodoxy thing. The sign says like, stay away from the edge of the cliff. Right. So like if you're a modern orthodox, like cool, you saw the sign. If you're starting to become more right wing, it's like, <laughs> let's put a fence there just in case somebody didn't see that sign. And then like if you're more even more right wing, you're getting Hasidic, it's like, let's put a wall also beyond the fence in case you climb the fence. <laughs> now there's a wall so you definitely won't fall over the edge. Right. To what extent would you say, I mean, having spent time in these communities though, that the like everyday presence of God as a part of life. I mean, that people are thinking in terms of like, oh, God is present in my life. The, 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 his love is manifest in yeah. this, my children here. You know, to, I don't think- To I what think, extent is that the case? So I also like, wanted to point out that Hasidic Judaism is also a culture. I spent time with women who I didn't see pray one time. Mm. 
but they follow the, the norms of the culture. Ruchi happens to pray three times a day. She's she's like one of the most religious people I know, deeply gotcha. religious. Gotcha. So I think it's it's again like you're dealing with like a huge group of people. They're as diverse as as humans anywhere, and there's a huge gradation in terms of their relationship with yes. the culture. That and they I, I just think people because the Hasidic community is so complicated in, in how we categorize it (laughs) are they persecuted or are they privileged are they white are they not white like who are these people people don't know what to do with this community i think it's a good time for us to see the second of the two clips and it may take us in a totally different direction and if we have time it would be maybe nice to circle back a little bit to to ruhi and her group's like journey and how they how they fought the battles that they fought but we'll see we'll see where we go from here okay this one is Michael Hobbs, and it is called Three Inconvenient Truths About the Millennial Generation. So this is a very different direction for us. There are three things that every millennial should know. The first one is that there is no evidence for any of the stereotypes about us. If you look at entitlement, if you look at selfishness, if you look at public opinion polling, there's as much evidence that we're worse than our parents as there is that we are werewolves. There is none. Whereas there's a mountain of evidence that things are harder for our generation than they were for our parents or our grandparents and that it's getting worse. So how many articles have you read about how more millennials are living with their parents now than ever? There are twice as many millennials living on their own, making less than $30,000 a year than there are millennials living with their parents. We don't read any articles about that. So what we need to do is acknowledge that all of these stereotypes come from anecdotes, that they are older people who have seen a millennial on a skateboard or have had a intern who was a young person who they didn't like very much and have decided that that is representative of an entire generation and we need to resist that. It wasn't always like this. When my dad bought his first house, he was 29, living in Seattle, he was a university professor and his house cost 18 months of his salary. Now, if you're a young person living in a big city, you know that that is science fiction. In the vast majority of America, especially in cities, it will cost you six, seven, 10, 12 years of the median salary to buy the median home. So this idea that we're different from our parents because we have changed is completely false. What has happened is the economy has profoundly shifted underneath us. Housing, healthcare, and education are all three times more expensive now than they were in 1968. Those are the prerequisites of a middle-class adulthood, of a secure adulthood, a real life. And our parents like to point out that things like refrigerators and TVs are a lot cheaper, and they are, that's great. But the things we actually need in our lives are much more expensive, and our wages have not kept up. So one of the things that we forget, and especially our parents forget, is how much cheaper college used to be. When my dad was in college, he worked for 10 hours a week in the cafeteria, and that was enough for his tuition and a little bit of his rent. That doesn't sound familiar to anybody I know. And what has happened since then is the cost of education has gone up between 400 and 1200%, depending on the kind of school you go to. Meanwhile, minimum wages haven't really budged, general wages haven't really budged, and the price of everything else has gotten higher too. So in the early 70s, it took around 300 hours of minimum wage work to afford a four-year education. By the 2000s, it took 4,400 hours of minimum wage work to afford a four-year education. 
I was thinking about this this thing of sort of, you know, who gets to who who is doing the defining of of another group, and so like for us, for me, standing outside of this community, there's always a gymnastics going on in my head, which is like, what does this mean in the context of my life? When in fact, the the real question to ask is, what does it mean within its own context? Your brain wants to do backflips to try to make sense of these other people that are living in a very different community, very near to your own. What does it mean that they're living like this in 2018? But that really means 2018 as I understand it. Exactly. The only way to overcome that is to engage with other people face to face. Like that's really the only way. You know, if you want a Hasidic person to say good morning to you, like try saying good morning to them first. (laughs) Like I've yet to like walk in the streets of Borough Park unless I have a camera that's totally different. Don't don't (laughs) do that. And, And like ask someone a question and have them ignore me. That has like never happened. Even like a man. I'm not saying that every man walking around there wants to engage with a woman, but I I, I haven't had that experience where people like simply won't talk to me. Mm-hmm. So if you go in, you know, if someone's going in there with the idea that they are insular and they don't want anything to do with me and they're standoffish and whatever, whatever, then that's a self-fulfilling Right, prophecy. you're putting out that vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I just think this community is in this culture is like any other non-typical western culture i mean we live we're in new york city right now look at all the neighborhoods in new york city right i mean there a lot of them are defined by culture yeah if you go like deep into spanish harlem or something it's a very different experience from park slope you know yeah yeah with getting uh insular communities to open up it has to be done with grace like that's the Respect, own, and kindness, yeah, yeah, and and yeah, yeah. that's how people open up. I mean, just people to people. The second mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. are defensive, you're judgmental. That's no one is going to engage in that way, and especially right. if you're telling people that they're backwards. Um, again, it might like feel good to say that, but you're not going to get a result. So it's like, what do you want to do? Do you want to just make your point or you want to get what you want? Respect for the fact that however different this person might be from you, however different their values might be from yours, they are, as you say, living within their bubble, struggling, trying to figure out the world from within the world that they live in and just as you are. And I think like another key word that I always think of is validation. Everybody needs to be validated. And once you... I think, you know, because this is like also a parenting thing. Like once you start with a validating statement, you're then able to critique. Hmm. Because I'm not saying that like you you should just accept the community the way it is. Like you can critique people and and cultures. Like that's okay. But if you, you know, let's say the Hasidic community, you're like, you know, I understand that, you know, historically you've had a really hard time um, because of, you know, you dress Hasidically. The Hasidic community experiences anti-Semitism more than any other Jewish subset. Sure, they're identifiable, yeah. They're spit on on a daily basis. So again, that's like another reactive thing. So you start with saying like, I validate your experience. Then all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, like this person understands me. Like it's a safe, it's safe. And then you can get into other conversations like, why are things about education in your community the way it is? You know, why are other problematic aspects, but... And that's, it, a, and that's a two-way street. You have to then be open to to them inquiring in exactly. the same way about your culture. Exactly. But I think we all 
need validation. And I think this community does not in any way get validated for for any of their behavior. And I, I think that's a mistake. It's a PR problem, you oh know? My, so <laughs> much of Judaism is a PR problem. I think we have like the worst PR of mankind. <laughs> it's like, hey, look, uh, long black coat and serious expression. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, not it doesn't sell. Anyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it, you got it. It's like a really bad PR. <laughs> In the time that we have left, I did want to circle back then to the specific story and the struggle of Ruchi and her group. And she's very much a driving force here. I mean, this this isn't happening without her. No. But maybe you can talk about, yeah, yeah that those conflicts that and, and the journey that they went on. You know, this has been a struggle and a mission for 30 years to get women involved in EMS. Mm. Uh, since the birth of Hatzalah, the all-male corps, there was supposed to be a women's, women were supposed to participate. There was right. supposed to be a women's uh, you know, division as well. And then right before it launched in the late 1960s, the rabbis and some community leaders said, no, it's not modest for women. Mm. After like over 150 women had trained. Oh, wow. So this has been something that has been a dream for many women for a long time. Um, but it took a Ruchi Friar to really get it off the ground. You know, she went from empowering women to her, in her community to them becoming a leader for the entire community. Uh-huh. Um, so to me, it's it's also about feminism and how feminism not only uplifts women, but men as well. Um, and that's really her trajectory. You know, uh, unfortunately or not, like <laughs> feminism and women's empowerment only works with having the support of certain men. The power needs to be like actually given over. And this is this story is about like what does feminism look like in the Hasidic community? Because feminism takes on different shapes and forms across different communities. The feminism in Park Slope and the feminism in Borough Park are not going to look the same. And in fact, she, Ruchi, resists the label of feminism Because it means initially. something totally different in Borough Park. Yeah, and, it's, and, like, and, uh, it's like you're an um, apostate in a way. You know, yeah, You just want to turn over the system. Exactly. Yeah. And so she has to be very careful about that. These are not women who are looking to leave the community. Right. They're working within the framework, which is why they have so much at stake. Because they can't, if they're perceived as too radical, it won't work for them. It's a risk to their kids, their, to the schools their kids are in. Right. So right. Their, play- their kids will get kicked out yeah, of school. It's playing, yeah, it's playing by the rules. So it's been a struggle. But they, uh, Ezra Snashim just won um, EMS Agency of the Year from New York State. And New York City. Mm, wow. So they're getting wide support. FDMY fully supports them. I mean, the, everyone on the bureaucratic state level loves this organization. And they're they're looking to expand to include women outside of Borough Park, not just Hasidic women. So this is really the beginning of something huge. That's amazing. And is it translating into greater support within the community or greater backlash or both? It's kind of like they're here to stay. Right. They're not going anywhere. Got it. So just accept them at this point. <laughs> you know, they're not budging. So ultimately, this is a success story of, at least for now, of how a community can change and still remain intact. Exactly. Paula Eiselt, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Two more... 
conversations and then a three-week hiatus while I go on vacation to an undisclosed location in the world with my family. In the meantime, feel free to drop me an email at jason at bigthink.com. I love to hear from people about what you think about the show and who you are and why you listen. Uh, Please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. And we'll be back next week with something completely different. And I hope you can join us. 